CD2 He mooched back through the damp darkness, but stopped when he heard a voice coming from the gloom between the two buildings. The voice said, Help, quite quietly. Another voice said, Just hand it over, right? Victor wandered closer and squinted into the shadows. Hello, he said. Is everything all right? There was a pause, and then a low voice said, You don't know what's good for you, kid. He's got a knife, Victor thought. He's coming at me with a knife. That means I'm either going to get stabbed or I'm going to have to run away, which is a real waste of energy. People who didn't apply themselves to the facts in hand might have thought that Victor Tugelbend would be fat and unhealthy. In fact, he was undoubtedly the most athletically inclined student in the university. Having to haul around extra poundage was far too much effort, and he saw to it that he never put it on, and he kept himself in trim, because doing things with decent muscles was far less effort than trying to achieve things with bags of flab. So he brought one hand round in a backhanded swipe. It didn't just connect, it lifted the mugger off his feet. Then he looked for the prospective victim, who was still cowering against the wall. I hope you're not hurt, he said. Don't move. I wasn't going to, said Victor. The figure advanced from the shadows. It had a package under one arm, and its hands were held in front of its face in an odd gesture. Each forefinger and thumb extended at right angles, and then fitted together so that the man's little weaselly eyes appeared to be looking out through a frame. He's probably warding off the evil eye, Victor thought. He looks like a wizard with all those symbols on his dress. Amazing, said the man, squinting through his fingers. Just, just... Turn your head slightly, will you? Great. Pity about the nose, but I expect we can do something about that. He stepped forward and tried to put his arm round Victor's shoulders. It's lucky for you, he said, that you met me. It is, said Victor, who had been thinking it was the other way round. You're just the type I'm looking for, said the man. Sorry, said Victor. I thought you were being robbed. He was after this, said the man, patting the package under his arm. It rang like a gong. Wouldn't have done him any good, though. Not worth anything, said Victor. Priceless. Well, that's all right, then, said Victor. The man gave up trying to reach across both of Victor's shoulders, which were quite broad, and settled for just one of them. But a lot of people would be disappointed, he said. Now, look, you stand well. Good profile. Listen, lad. How would you like to be in moving pictures? Er, uh, said Victor, no, I don't think so. The man gaped at him. You did hear what I said, didn't you? He said, moving pictures. Yes, everyone wants to be in moving pictures. No, thanks, said Victor politely. I'm sure it's a worthwhile job, but moving pictures doesn't sound very interesting to me. I'm talking about moving pictures. Yes, said Victor mildly. I heard you. The man shook his head. Well, he said, you've made my day. First time in weeks I've met someone who isn't desperate to get into moving pictures. I thought everyone wanted to get into moving pictures. I thought as soon as I saw you, he'll be expecting a job in moving pictures for this night's work. Thanks all the same, said Victor, but I don't think I'd take to it. Well, I owe you something. The little man fumbled in a pocket and produced a card. Victor took it. It read, 
Thomas Silverfish, Interesting and Instructive Kinematography, One and Two Reelers, Nearly Non-Explosive Stock, One Holy Wood. That's if ever you change your mind, he said. Everyone in Holywood knows me. Victor stared at the card. Thank you, he said vaguely. Um, are you a wizard? Silverfish glared at him. Whatever made you think that, he snapped. Were you wearing a dress with magic symbols? Magic symbols? Look closely, boy. These are certainly not the credulous symbols of a ridiculous and outmoded belief system. These are the badges of an enlightened craft whose clear new dawn is just uh, dawning magic symbols. He finished in tones of withering scorn. And it's a robe, not a dress, he added. Victor peered at the collection of stars and crescent moons and things. The badges of an enlightened craft whose new dawn was just dawning looked just like the credulous symbols of a ridiculous and outmoded belief system to him. But this was probably not the time to say so. Sorry, he said again. Couldn't see them clearly. I'm an alchemist, said Silverfish, only slightly mollified. Oh, lead into gold, that sort of thing, said Victor. Not lead, lad. Light. It doesn't work with lead. Light into gold. Really, said Victor politely, as Silverfish started to set up a tripod in the middle of the plaza. A small crowd was collecting. A small crowd collected very easily in Ankh-Morpork. As a city, it had some of the most accomplished spectators in the universe. They'd watch anything, especially if there was any possibility of anyone getting hurt in an amusing way. Why don't you stay for the show, said Silverfish, and hurried off. An alchemist. Well, everyone knew that alchemists were a little bit mad, thought Victor. It was perfectly normal. Who'd want to spend their time moving pictures? Most of them looked all right where they were. Sausages in a barn. Get them while they're hot, bellowed a voice by his ear. He turned. Oh, hello, Mr. Dibbler, he said. Evening, lad. Want to get a nice hot sausage down you? Victor eyed the glistening tubes in the tray around Dibbler's neck. They smelled appetising. They always did. And then you bit into them and learned once again that cut-me-own-throat Dibbler could find a use for bits of animal that the animal didn't even know it had got. Dibbler had worked out that with enough fried onions and mustard, people would eat anything. Special rate for students, Dibbler whispered conspiratorially. Fifteen pence, and that's cutting me own throat. He flapped the frying pan lid strategically, raising a cloud of steam. The piquant scent of fried onions did its wicked work. Just one, then, said Victor warily. Dibbler flicked a sausage out of the pan and snatched it into a bun with the expertise of a frog snapping a mayfly. "'You won't live to regret it,' he said cheerfully. Victor nibbled a bit of onion. That was safe enough. "'What's all this?' he said, jerking a thumb in the direction of the flapping screen. "'Some kind of entertainment,' said Dibbler. "'Hot sausages, they're lovely!' He lowered his voice again to its normal conspiratorial hiss. All the rage in the other cities, I hear, he added. Some sort of moving pictures. They've been trying to get it right before coming to Ankh-Morpork. They watched Silverfish and a couple of associates fumble technically with the box on the tripod. White light suddenly appeared at a circular orifice on the front of it and illuminated the screen. There was a half-hearted cheer from the crowd. 
Oh, said Victor, I see. Is that all? It's just plain old shadow play. That's all it is. My uncle used to do it to amuse me, you know. You kind of move your hands in front of the light and the shadows make a kind of silhouette picture. Oh, yeah, said Dibbler, uncertainly. Like Big Elephant or Bald Eagle. My grandpa used to do that sort of stuff. Mainly my uncle did Deformed Rabbit, said Victor. He wasn't very good at it, you see. It used to get pretty embarrassing. We'd all sit round desperately guessing things like Surprised Hedgehog or Rabid Stoat. And he'd go off to bed in a sulk because we hadn't guessed he was really doing Lord Henry Skips and his men beating the trolls at the Battle of Pseudopolis. I can't see what's so special about shadows on a screen. From what I hear, it's not like that, said Dibbler. I sold one of the men a jumbo sausage special earlier on, and he said it's all down to showing pictures very fast. Sticking lots of pictures together and showing them one after the other very, very fast, he said. Not too fast, said Victor severely. You wouldn't be able to see them go past if they were too fast. He said that's the whole secret. Not seeing them go past, said Dibbler. You have to see them all at once or something. They'd all be blurred, said Victor. Didn't you ask him about that? Nah, said Dibbler. Point of fact, he had to rush off just then, said he felt a bit odd. Victor looked thoughtfully at the remnant of his sausage in a bun, and as he did so, he was aware of being stared at in his turn. He looked down. There was a dog sitting by his feet. It was small, bow-legged and wiry, and basically grey, but with patches of brown, white and black in outlying areas, and it was staring. It was certainly the most penetrating stare Victor had ever seen. It wasn't menacing or fawning, it was just very slow and very thorough, as though the dog was memorising details so that it could give a full description to the authorities later on. When it was sure it had his full attention, it transferred its gaze to the sausage. Feeling wretched at being so cruel to a poor, dumb animal, Victor flicked the sausage downwards. The dog caught and swallowed it in one economical movement. More people were drifting into the plaza now. Cut-me-own throat Dibbler had wandered off and was doing a busy trade with those late-night revellers who were too drunk to prevent optimism triumphing over experience. Anyone who bought a meal at 1am after a night's revelling was probably going to be riotously ill anyway, so they might as well have something to show for it. Victor was gradually surrounded by a large crowd. It didn't consist solely of humans. He recognised a few feet away the big rangy shape of Detritus, an ancient troll well known to all the students as someone who found employment anywhere people needed to be thrown very hard out of places for money. The troll noticed him and tried to wink. This involved closing both eyes because detritus wasn't good at complicated things. It was widely believed that if detritus could be taught to read and write sufficiently to sit down and do an intelligence test, he'd prove to be slightly less intelligent than the chair. Silverfish picked up a megaphone. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, he said, you are privileged tonight to witness a turning point in the history of the century of... He lowered the megaphone, and Victor heard him whisper urgently to one of his assistants. "'What century is this, is it?' And then raised the megaphone again, and continued in the original plummily optimistic tones. "'Century of the fruit bat! No less than the birth of moving pictures! Pictures that move without magic!' He waited for the applause. There wasn't any. 
The crowd just watched him. You needed to do more than end your sentences with an exclamation mark to get a round of applause from an Ark Morport crowd. Slightly dispirited, he went on. Seeing is believing, they say. But, ladies and gentlemen, you will not believe the evidence of your own eyes. What you are about to witness is a triumph of natural science, a marvel of the age, a discovery of world, nay, dare I say, universe-shaking proportions. It's got to be better than that bloody sausage anyways said a quiet voice by Victor's knee. Harnessing natural mechanisms to create illusion. Illusion, ladies and gentlemen, without recourse to magic. Victor let his gaze slide downwards. There was nothing down there but the little dog industriously scratching itself. It looked up slowly and said, Woof. Potential for learning, the arts, history... I thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, you ain't seen nothing yet. There was another hopeful break for applause. Someone at the front of the crowd said, That's right, we ain't. Yeah, said the woman next to him. When you going to stop going on like that and get on with the shadow play? That's right, snapped a second woman. Do deformed rabbit. My kids always loved that one. Victor looked away for a while to lull the dog's suspicions and then turned and glared hard at it. It was amiably watching the crowd and apparently taking no notice of him. Victor poked an exploratory finger in his ear. It must have been a trick of an echo or something. It wasn't that the dog had gone woof, although that was practically unique in itself. Most dogs in the universe never went woof. They had complicated barks like woof and woof. No, it was that it hadn't in fact barked at all. It had said, Woof. He shook his head and looked back as Silverfish climbed down from the screen and motioned to one of his assistants to start turning a handle at the side of the box. There was a grinding noise that rose to a steady clicking. Vague shadows danced across the screen, and then... One of the last things Victor remembered was a voice beside his knee saying, Could have been worse, mister. I could have said meow. Hollywood Dreams. And now it was eight hours later. A horribly overhung Ponder Stibbons looked guiltily at the empty desk beside him. It was unlike Victor to miss exams. He always said he enjoyed the challenge. Get ready to turn over your papers, said the invigilator at the end of the hall. The sixty chests of sixty prospective wizards tightened with dark, unbearable tension. Ponder fumbled anxiously with his lucky pen. The wizard on the desk turned over the hourglass. "'You may begin,' he said. Several of the more smug students turned over their papers by snapping their fingers. Ponder hated them instantly. He reached for his lucky inkwell, missed completely in his nervousness, and then knocked it over. A small black flood rolled over his question paper. Panic and shame washed over him nearly as thoroughly. He mopped up the ink with the hem of his robe, spreading it smoothly over the desk. His lucky dried frog had been washed away. Hot with embarrassment, dripping black ink, he looked up in supplication at the presiding wizard and then cast his eyes imploringly at the empty desk beside him. 
the wizard nodded. Ponder gratefully sidled across the aisle, waited until his heart had stopped thumping, and then very carefully turned over the paper on the desk. After ten seconds, and against all reason, he turned it over again, just in case there'd been a mistake, and the rest of the questions had somehow been on the top side after all. Around him there was the intense silence of fifty-nine minds creaking with sustained effort. Ponder turned the paper over again. Perhaps it was some mistake. No, there was the university seal and the signature of the arch-chancellor and everything. So perhaps it was some sort of special test. Perhaps they were watching him now to see what he'd do. He peered around furtively. The other students seemed to be working hard. Perhaps it was a mistake after all. Yes, the more he came to think about it, the more logical it seemed. The Arch-Chancellor had probably signed the papers, and then, when the clerks had been copying them out, one of them had got as far as the all-important first question, and then maybe had been called away or something, and no one had noticed, and it had got put on Victor's desk. But now he wasn't here, and Ponder had got it, which meant he decided in a sudden rush of piety that the gods must have wanted him to get it. After all, it wasn't his fault if some sort of error gave him a paper like this. It was probably sacrilegious or something to ignore the opportunity. They had to accept what you put down. Ponder hadn't shared the room with the world's greatest authority on examination procedures without learning a thing or two. He looked again at the question. What is your name? He answered it. After a while, he underlined it several times with his lucky ruler. After a little while longer, to show willing, he wrote above it, The answer to question one is... After a further ten minutes, he ventured, "'Which is what my name is?' on the line below, and underlined it. "'Poor old Victor will be really sorry he missed this,' he thought. "'I wonder where he is.' There was no road to Holywood yet. Anyone trying to get there would take the highway to Quirm, and at some unmarked point out in the scrubby landscape would turn off and strike out towards the sand dunes. Wild lavender and rosemary lined the banks. There was no sound but the buzzing of bees and the distant song of a skylark, which only made the silence more obvious. Victor Tugelbend left the road at the point where the bank had been broken down and flattened by the passage of many carts, and by the look of it, an increasing number of feet. There were still many miles to go. He trudged on. Somewhere at the back of his mind, a tiny voice was saying things like, Where am I? Why am I doing this? And another part of him knew that he didn't really have to do it at all. Like the hypnotist's victim, who knows they're not really hypnotised and can snap out of it any time they like, but just happened not to feel like it right now, he let his feet be guided. He wasn't certain why. He just knew that there was something that he had to be part of, something that might never happen again. Some way behind, but catching up fast, was cut-me-own-throat Dibbler trying to ride a horse. He was not a natural horseman, and fell off occasionally, which was one reason why he hadn't overtaken Victor yet. The other was that he had paused before leaving the city to sell his sausage-in-a-bun business cheaply to a dwarf, who could not believe his luck. After actually trying some of the sausages, would still not be able to believe his luck. Something was calling Dibbler, and it had a golden voice. A long way behind Throat, knuckles dragging in the sand, was Detritus the Troll. It's hard to be certain of what he was thinking, any more than it's possible to tell what a homing pigeon is thinking. He just knew that where he ought to be was not where he was. And finally, even further down the road, was an eight-horse wagon taking a load of lumber to Holywood. 
Its driver wasn't thinking about anything very much, although he was slightly puzzled by an incident that occurred just as he was leaving Ark Moorpork in the darkness before dawn. A voice from the gloom by the road had shouted, Stop in the name of the city guard! And he had stopped, and when nothing further had transpired, he had looked around, and there was no one there. The wagon rumbled past, revealing to the eye of the imaginative beholder the small figure of Gaspode the Wonder Dog, trying to make himself comfortable among the bulks of timber at the rear. He was going to Holywood too, and he also didn't know why, but he was determined to find out. No one would have believed, in the final years of the century of the fruit bat, that Discworld affairs were being watched keenly and impatiently by intelligences greater than man's, or at least much nastier, that their affairs were being scrutinised and studied as a man with a three-day appetite might study the all-you-can-gobble-for-a-dollar menu outside Harger's house of ribs. Well, actually, most wizards would have believed it, if anyone had told them, and the librarian would certainly have believed it. And Mrs. Marietta Cosmopolite, of Three Quirm Street, Ark Moorpork, would have believed it too. But she believed the world was round, that a sprig of garlic in her underwear drawer kept away vampires, and that it did you good to get out and have a laugh occasionally, that there was niceness in everyone, if you only knew where to look, and that three horrible little dwarfs peered in at her undressing every night. She was right about that, but only by coincidence. Holywood was nothing very much yet, just a hill by the sea, and on the other side of the hill a lot of sand dunes. It was that special sort of beautiful area which is only beautiful if you can leave after briefly admiring its beauty and go somewhere else where there are hot tubs and cold drinks. Actually staying there for any length of time is a penance. Nevertheless, there was a town there, just. Wooden shacks had been built wherever someone had dropped a load of timber, and they were crude, as if the builders had resented the time taken from something more important that they'd much rather be doing. They were square plank boxes, except for the front. If you wanted to understand Holywood, Victor said years afterwards, you had to understand its buildings. You'd see a box on the sand. It'd have a roughly peaked roof, but that wasn't important because it never rained in Holywood. There'd be cracks in the walls stuffed with old rags. The windows would be holes... Glass was too fragile to cart all the way from Ark Moorpork, and from behind the front was just like a huge wooden billboard held up by a network of struts. From the front it was a fretted, carved, painted, ornate, baroque, architectural extravaganza. In Ark Moorpork sensible men built their houses plain so as not to attract attention, and kept the decoration for inside. But Holywood wore its houses inside out. Victor walked up what passed for the main street in a daze. He had woken up in the early hours out in the dunes. Why? he decided to come to Holywood, but why? He couldn't remember. All he could remember was that at the time it was the obvious thing to do. There had been hundreds of good reasons, if only he could remember one of them. Not that his mind had any room to review memories. It was too busy being aware that he was very hungry and acutely thirsty. His pockets had yielded a total of seven pence. That wouldn't buy a bowl of soup, let alone a good meal. He needed a good meal. Things would look a lot clearer after a good meal. He pushed through the crowds. Most of them seemed to be carpenters, but there were others carrying carboys or mysterious boxes, and everyone was moving very quickly and resolutely, bent on some powerful purpose of their own, except him. 
He trailed up the impromptu street, gawping at the houses, feeling like a stray grasshopper in an anthill. And they didn't seem to... Why don't you look where you're going? He rebounded off a wall. When he got his balance, the other party in the collision had already whirred off into the crowd. He stared for a moment and then ran desperately after her. Hey, he said. Sorry, uh, excuse me, miss. She stopped and waited impatiently as he caught up. Well, she said. She was a foot shorter than him, and her shape was doubtful, since most of her was covered in a ridiculously frilly dress, although the dress wasn't as ludicrous as the big blonde wig full of ringlets. And her face was white, with makeup, apart from the eyes, which were heavily ringed in black. The general effect was of a lampshade that hadn't been getting much sleep lately. "'Well,' she repeated, "'hurry up, they're shooting again in five minutes.' Um. She unbent slightly. No, don't tell me, she said. You've just got here. It's all new to you. You don't know what to do. You're hungry. You haven't got any money, right? Yes. How did you know? Everyone starts like that, and now you want to break into the cliques, right? The cliques? She rolled her eyes deep within their black circles. Moving pictures. Oh. I do, he thought. I didn't know it, but I do. Yes, that's why I came here. Why didn't I think of that? Yes, he said. Yes, that's what I want to do. I want to, uh, break in. And how does one do that? One waits forever and ever until one is noticed. The girl looked him up and down with unconcealed contempt. Take up carpentry, why don't you? Hollywood always needs good wood butchers. And then she spun around and was gone, lost in a crowd of busy people. Uh, thank you, Victor called after her. Thank you, he raised his voice and added, I hope your eyes get better. He jingled the coins in his pocket. Well, carpentry was out. It sounded too much like hard work. He tried it once, and Wood and him had soon reached an agreement. He wouldn't touch it, and it wouldn't split. Waiting forever and ever had its attractions, but you needed money to do it with. His fingers closed around a small, unexpected rectangle. He pulled it out and looked at it. Silverfish's card. Number one, Holywood, turned out to be a couple of shacks inside a high fence. There was a queue at the gate. It was made up of trolls, dwarfs and humans. They looked as though they had been there for some time. In fact, some of them had such a naturally dispirited way of sagging while remaining upright that they might have been specially evolved descendants of the original prehistoric queuers. At the gate was a large, heavy-set man who was eyeing the queue with the smug look of minor power-wielders everywhere. "'Excuse me,' Victor began. "'Mr. Silverfish ain't hiring any more people this morning,' said the man out of the corner of his mouth. "'So scram!' "'But he said that if ever I was in—' "'Did I just say scram, friend?' "'Yes, but—' The door in the fence opened a fraction. A small, pale face poked out. "'We need a troll and a couple of humans,' it said. One day, usual rates, the gate shut again. The man straightened up and cupped his scarred hands around his mouth. Right, you horrible lot, he shouted. You heard the man. He ran his eyes over the line with the practised gaze of a stock breeder. You, you, and you, he said, pointing. Excuse me, said Victor hopefully, but I think that man over there was actually first in the queue. He was shoved out of the way. The lucky three shuffled in. He thought he saw the glint of coins changing hands. Then the gatekeeper turned an angry red face towards him. You, he said, get to the end of the queue and stay there. 
Victor stared at him. He stared at the gate. He looked at the long line of dispirited people. Um, no, he said. I don't think so. Thanks all the same. Then beat it. Victor gave him a friendly smile. He walked to the end of the fence and followed it. It turned at the far end into a narrow alley. Victor searched among the usual alley debris for a while until he found a piece of scrap paper. Then he rolled up his sleeves, and only then did he inspect the fence carefully until he found a couple of loose boards that with a bit of effort let him through. This brought him into an area stacked with lumber and piles of cloth. There was no one around. Walking purposefully, in the knowledge that no one with their sleeves rolled up who walks purposefully with a piece of paper held conspicuously in their hand is ever challenged, he set out across the wood and canvas wonderland of interesting and instructive kinematography. There were buildings painted on the back of other buildings. There were trees that were trees at the front, and just a mass of struts at the back. There was a flurry of activity, although as far as Victor could see no one was actually producing anything. He watched a man in a long black cloak, a black hat and a moustache like a yard brush, tie a girl to one of the trees. No one seemed interested in stopping him, even though she was struggling. A couple of people were in fact watching disinterestedly, and there was a man standing behind a large box on a tripod turning a handle. She flung out an imploring arm and opened and shut her mouth soundlessly. One of the watchers stood up, sorted through a stack of boards beside him, and held one up in front of the box. It was black. On it, in white, were the words, No, no. He walked away. The villain twirled his moustache. The man walked back with a board. This time it said, Aha! My proud beauty! Another of the seated watchers picked up a megaphone. Fine, fine, he said. OK, take five minutes break and then everyone back here for the big fight scene. The villain untied the girl. They wandered off. The man stopped turning the handle, lit a cigarette, and then opened the top of the box. Everyone get that, he said. There was a chorus of squeaks. Victor walked over and tapped the megaphone man on his shoulder. Urgent message for Mr Silverfish, he said. He's in the offices over there, said the man, jerking his thumb over his shoulder without looking round. Thank you. The first shed he poked his head into contained nothing but rows of small cages stretching away into the gloom. Indistinct things hurled themselves against the bars and chittered at him. He slammed the door hurriedly. The next door revealed Silverfish, standing in front of a desk covered with bits of glassware and drifts of paper. He didn't turn round. "'Just put it over there,' he said absently. "'It's me, Mr Silverfish,' said Victor. Silverfish turned around and peered vaguely at him as if it was Victor's fault that his name meant nothing. "'Yes? I've come because of that job,' said Victor. "'You know?' "'What job? What should I know?' said Silverfish. "'How the hell did you get in here?' "'I broke into moving pictures,' said Victor. "'But it's nothing that a hammer and a few nails won't put right.' Panic bloomed on Silverfish's face. Victor pulled out the card and waved it in what he hoped was a reassuring way. "'In Ankh-Morpork,' pork he said, "'a couple of nights ago, you were being menaced.' Realisation dawned. Oh, yes, said Silverfish faintly, and you were the lad who was of some help. And you said to come and see you if I wanted to move pictures, said Victor. I didn't then, but I do now. He gave Silverfish a bright smile. But he thought, he's going to try and wriggle out of it. He's regretting the offer. He's going to send me back to the queue. 
Well, of course, said Silverfish. A lot of very talented people want to be in moving pictures. We're going to have sound any day now. I mean, are you a carpenter? Any alchemical experience? Have you ever trained imps? Any good with your hands at all? No, Victor admitted. Can you sing? A bit, in the bath, but not very well, Victor conceded. Can you dance? No. Swords? Do you know how to handle a sword? A little, said Victor. He'd used one sometimes in the gym. He'd never in fact fought an opponent, since wizards generally abhor exercise, and the only other university resident who ever entered the place was the librarian, and then only to use the ropes and rings. But Victor had practised an energetic and idiosyncratic technique in front of the mirror, and the mirror had never beaten him yet. "'I see,' said Silverfish gloomily. "'Can't sing, can't dance, can handle a sword a little.' "'But I have saved your life twice,' said Victor. "'Twice?' snapped Silverfish. "'Yes,' said Victor. He took a deep breath. This was going to be risky. "'Then,' he said, "'and now.' There was a long pause. Then Silverfish said, "'I really don't think there's any call for that.' "'I'm sorry, Mr Silverfish,' Victor pleaded. "'I'm really not that kind of person, but you did say, "'and I've walked all this way, and I haven't got any money, "'and I'm hungry, and I'll do anything you've got, anything at all. "'Please?' "'Silverfish looked at him doubtfully. "'Even acting,' he said. "'Pardon? "'Moving about and pretending to do things?' said Silverfish helpfully. Yes. Seems a shame, a bright, well-educated lad like you, said Silverfish. What do you do? I'm studying to be a wo Victor began. He remembered Silverfish's antipathy towards wizardry and corrected himself. Uh, a clerk. A clerk, said Silverfish. I don't know if I'd be any good at acting, though, Victor confessed. Silverfish looked surprised. Oh, you'll be okay, he said. It's very hard to be bad at acting in moving pictures. He fumbled in his pocket and pulled out a dollar coin. Here, he said. Go and get something to eat. He looked Victor up and down. Are you waiting for something? he said. Uh, well, said Victor, I was hoping you could tell me what's going on. How do you mean? A couple of nights ago I watched your click. He felt silently proud of remembering the term. "'Back in the city, and suddenly I wanted to be here more than anything else. "'I've never really wanted anything in my life before.' "'Silverfish's face broke into a relieved grin. "'Oh, that,' he said. "'That's just the magic of Hollywood. "'Not wizard's magic,' he added hastily, "'which is all superstition and mumbo-jumbo. "'No, this is magic for ordinary people. "'Your mind is fizzing with all the possibilities.' "'I know mine was,' he added.' "'Yes,' said Victor uncertainly, "'but how does it work?' Silverfish's face lit up. "'You want to know?' he said. "'You want to know how things work?' "'Yes, I... "'You see, most people are so disappointing,' Silverfish said. "'You show them something really wonderful like the picture box, "'and they just go, "'Oh, and they never ask how it works. "'Mr Bird!' "'The last word was a shout.' After a while, a door opened on the far side of the shack, and a man appeared. He had a picture box on a strap around his neck. Assorted tools hung from his belt. His hands were stained with chemicals, and he had no eyebrows, which Victor later was to learn was a sure sign of someone who had been around octocellulose for any length of time. 
He also had his cap on back to front. This is Gaffer Bird, beamed Silverfish, our head handleman. Gaffer, this is Victor. He's going to act for us. Oh, said Gaffer, looking at Victor in the same way that a butcher might look at a carcass. Is he? And he wants to know how things work, said Silverfish. Gaffer gave Victor another jaundiced look. Strang, he said gloomily. It all works by strang. You'd be amazed how things fall to bits round here, he said, if it weren't for me and my ball of strang. There was a sudden commotion from the box around his neck. He thumped it with the flat of his hand. You lock and cut that out, he said. He nodded at Victor. They gets fractious if their routine is upset, he said. What's in the box, said Victor. Gaffer winked at Silverfish. I bet you'd like to know, he said. Victor remembered the caged things he'd seen in the shed. They sound like common demons, he said cautiously. Gaffer gave him an approving look, such as might be given to a stupid dog who had just done a rather clever trick. Yeah, that's right, he conceded. But how do you stop them escaping, said Victor. Gaffer leered. Amazing stuff, string, he said. Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler was one of those rare people with the ability to think in straight lines. Most people think in curves and zigzags. For example, they start from a thought like, I wonder how I can become very rich, and then proceed along an uncertain course which includes thoughts like, I wonder what's for supper, and I wonder who I know who can lend me five dollars. Whereas Throat was one of those people who could identify the thought at the other end of the process, in this case, I am now very rich, draw a line between the two, and then think his way along it, slowly and patiently, until he got to the other end. Not that it worked. There was always, he found, some small but vital flaw in the process. It generally involved a strange reluctance on the part of people to buy what he had to sell. But his life savings were now resting in a leather bag inside his jerkin. He'd been in Holywood for a day. He'd looked at its ramshackle organisation, such as it was, with the eye of a lifelong salesman. There seemed nowhere in it for him, but this wasn't a problem. There was always room at the top. A day's inquiries and careful observation had led him to interesting and instructive kinematography. Now he stood on the far side of the street, watching carefully. He watched the queue. He watched the man on the gate. He reached a decision. He strolled along the queue. He had brains. He knew he had brains. What he needed now was muscle. Somewhere here there was bound to be... Afternoon, Mr. Dibbler. That flat head, those rangy arms, that curling lower lip, that croaking voice that bespoke an IQ the size of a walnut. It added up to... It's me, Detritus, said Detritus. Fancy seeing you here, eh? He gave Dibbler a grin like a crack appearing in a vital bridge support. "'Hello, Detritus. You working in films?' said Dibbler. "'Not exactly working,' said Detritus bashfully. Dibbler looked quietly at the troll whose chipped fists were generally the final word in any street fight. "'I call that disgusting,' he said. He pulled out his money bag and counted out five dollars. "'How would you like to work for me, Detritus?' Detritus touched his jutting brow respectfully. "'Right you are, Mr. Dibbler,' he said. "'Just step this way.' 
Dibbler strolled back up to the head of the queue. The man at the door thrust out an arm to bar his way. "'Where do you think you're going, pal?' he said. "'I have an appointment with Mr. Silverfish,' said Dibbler. "'And he knows about this, does he?' said the guard, in tones that suggested that he personally would not believe it even if he saw it written on the sky. "'Not yet,' said Dibbler. "'Well, my friend, in that case you can just get yourself to... "'Detritus?' "'Yes, Mr. Dibbler. "'Hit this man.' "'Right you are, Mr. Dibbler.' Detritus's arm whirled around in a 180-degree arc with oblivion on the end of it. The guard was lifted off his feet and smashed through the door, coming to a stop in its wreckage twenty feet away. There was a cheer from the queue. Dibbler looked approvingly at the troll. Detritus was wearing nothing except a ragged loincloth which covered whatever it was that trolls felt it necessary to conceal. "'Very good, Detritus. Right you are, Mr. Dibbler.' "'But we shall have to see about getting you a suit,' said Dibbler. "'Now, please, guard, the gate. Don't let anyone in.' "'Right you are, Mr. Dibbler.' Two minutes later, a small grey dog trotted through the troll's short and bandy legs and hopped over the remains of the gate. But Detritus didn't do anything about this because everyone knew dogs weren't anyone. "'Mr. Silverfish,' said Dibbler, Silverfish, who had been cautiously crossing the studio with a box of fresh film stock, hesitated at the sight of a skinny figure bearing down on him like a long-lost weasel. Dibbler's expression was the expression worn by something long and sleek and white as it swims over the reef and into the warm, shallow waters of the kiddies' paddling area. "'Yes,' said Silverfish. "'Who are you? How did you get—' "'Dibbler's the name,' said Dibbler. "'But I'd like you to call me Throat.' He clasped Silverfish's unresisting hand and then placed his other hand on the man's shoulder and stepped forward, pumping the first hand vigorously. The effect was of acute affability, and it meant that if Silverfish backed away, he would dislocate his own elbow. "'And I'd just like you to know,' Dibbler went on, "'that we're all incredibly impressed at what you boys are doing here.' Silverfish watched his own hand being strenuously made friends with, and grinned uncertainly. "'You are!' he ventured. "'All this!' Dibbler released Silverfish's shoulder, just long enough to expansively indicate the energetic chaos around them. "'Fantastic!' he said. "'Marvellous! And that last thing of yours, what was it called now?' "'High jinks at the store,' said Silverfish. "'That's the one where the thief steals the sausages "'and the shopkeeper chases him.' "'Yeah,' said Dibbler, "'his fixed smile glazing for only a second or two "'before becoming truly sincere again. "'Yeah, that was it. "'Amazing. True genius. "'A beautifully sustained metaphor.' "'That cost us nearly twenty dollars, you know.' "'said Silverfish with shy pride. "'And another forty pence for the sausages, of course.' "'Amazing,' said Dibbler. "'And it must have been seen by hundreds of people, hmm? "'Thousands,' said Silverfish. "'There was no analogy for Dibbler's grin now. "'If it had managed to be any wider, "'the top of his head would have fallen off. "'Thousands,' he said. "'Really? That many?' And, of course, they all pay you... Oh, how much? 
Oh, we just take up a collection at the moment, said Silverfish, just to cover costs while we're still in the experimental stage, you understand? He looked down. I wonder, he added, could you stop shaking my hand now? Dibbler followed his gaze. Of course, he said, and let go. Silverfish's hand carried on going up and down for a while of its own accord out of sheer muscular spasm. Dibbler was silent for a moment, his expression that of a man in deep communion with some inner god. Then he said, "'You know, Thomas, uh, may I call you Thomas? When I saw that masterpiece, I thought, Dibbler, behind all this is a creative artist.' "'How did you know my name was a creative artist, I thought, who should be free?' to pursue his muse, instead of being burdened with all the fussy details of management. Am I right? Well, uh, it's true, all this paperwork is a bit... My thoughts exactly, said Dibbler. And I said, Dibbler, you should go there right now and offer him your services, you know. Administrate. Take the load off his shoulders. Let him get on with what he does best. Am I right, Tom? I, uh, yeah, it's true that my forte is really more in the... Right, right, said Dibbler. Tom, I accept. Silverfish's eyes were glassy. Um, he said... Dibbler punched him playfully on the shoulder. Just you show me the paperwork, he said, and then you can get right out there and do whatever it is you do so well. Uh, yes, said Silverfish. Dibbler grasped him by both arms and gave him a thousand watts of integrity. This is a proud moment for me, he said hoarsely. I can't tell you how much this means to me. I can honestly say this is the happiest day of my life. I want you to know that, Tommy. Sincerely. The reverential silence was broken by a faint sniggering. Dibbler looked around slowly. There was no one behind them apart from a small grey mongrel dog sitting in the shade of a heap of lumber. It noticed his expression and put its head on one side. Woof, it said. Cut me own throat, Dibbler looked around momentarily for something to throw, realised that this would be out of character, and turned back to the imprisoned silverfish. You know, he said sincerely, it's really lucky for me that I met you. Lunch in a tavern had cost Victor the dollar plus a couple of pence. It was a bowl of soup. Everything cost a lot, said the soup seller, because it all had to be brought a long way. There weren't any farms around Holywood. Anyway, who'd grow things when they could be making movies? Then he reported a gaffer for his screen test. This consisted of standing still for a minute while the handleman watched him owlishly over the top of a picture box. After the minute had passed, gaffer said, Right, you're a natural kid. But I didn't do anything, said Victor. You just told me not to move. Yeah, quite right, that's what we need, people who know how to stand still, said gaffer. None of this fancy acting like in the theatre... "'But you haven't told me what the demons do in the box,' said Victor. "'They do this,' said Gaffer, unclicking a couple of latches. "'A row of tiny, malevolent eyes glared out at Victor. "'These six demons here,' he said, pointing cautiously to avoid the claws, "'look out through the little hole in the front of the box, 
and paint pictures of what they see. There has to be six of them, okay? Two to paint and four to blow on it to get dry. On account of the next picture coming down, see? That's because every time this handle here is turned, the strip of transparent membrane is wound down one notch for the next picture. He turned the handle. It went click, 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 and the imps gibbered. What did they do that for? said Victor. Ah, said Gaffer, that's because the handle also drives this little wheel with whips on. The only way to get them to work fast enough. He's a lazy little devil, your average imp. It's all feedback anyway. The faster you turn the handle, the faster the film goes by. The faster they have to paint. You've got to get the speed just right. Very important job, handle manning. But isn't it all rather, well, cruel? Gaffer looked surprised. Oh, no, not really. I gets a rest every half an hour. Guild of Handlemen Regulations. He walked further along the bench, where another box stood with its back panel open. This time a cage full of sluggish-looking lizards blinked mournfully at Victor. We ain't very happy with this, said Gaffer, but it's the best we can do. Your basic salamander sea will lie in the desert all day absorbing light, and when it's frightened, it excretes the light again. Self-defence mechanism, it's called. So as the film goes past and the shutter ear clicks backwards and forwards, their light goes out through the film and these lenses here and onto the screen. Basically very simple. How do you make them frightened? said Victor. You see this handle? Oh. Victor prodded the picture box thoughtfully. Well, all right, he said. So you get lots of little pictures and you wind them fast. So we ought to see a blur, but we don't. Ah! said Gaffer, tapping the side of his nose. Handleman's Guild secret, that is. Handed down from initiate to initiate, he added importantly. Victor gave him a sharp look. I thought people had only been making movies for a few months, he said. Gaffer had the decency to look shifty. Well, OK. At the moment, we're more sort of handing it round, he admitted. But give us a few years and we'll soon be ending it down. Don't touch that! Victor jerked his hand back guiltily from the pile of cans on the bench. "'That's actual film in there,' said Gaffer, pushing them gently to one side. "'You've got to be very careful with it. You mustn't get it too hot, because it's made of octocellulose, and it don't like sharp knocks either.' "'What happens to it then?' said Victor, staring at the cans. "'Who knows? No one's ever lived long enough to tell us.' Gaffer looked at Victor's expression and grinned. Don't worry about that, he said. You'll be in front of the moving picture box. Except that I don't know how to act, said Victor. Do you know how to do what you're told, said Gaffer. What? Well, yes, I suppose so. That's all you need, lad, that's all you need. That and big muscles. They stepped out into the searing sunlight and headed for Silverfish's shed, which was occupied. Cut-me-own-throat Dibbler was meeting the movies. What I thought said Dibbler, is that, well, look, something like this. He held up a card. On it was written in shaky handwriting, After these per fromans, why not he visit Harger's House of Ribs for the best any hot cuisine? What's hot cuisine? said Victor. It's foreign, said Dibbler. He scowled at Victor. Someone like Victor under the same roof wasn't part of the plan. He'd been hoping to get Silverfish alone. Mains food, he added. Silverfish stared at the card. What about it, he said. 
Why don't you, said Dibbler, speaking very carefully, hold this card up at the end of the performance? Why should we do that? Because someone like Sham Hager will pay you a lot, er, uh, quite a lot of money, said Dibbler. They stared at the card. I've eaten at Hager's house of ribs, said Victor. I wouldn't say it's the best. Not the best. A long way from being the best, he thought for a bit. About as far away from being the best as you can get, in fact. That doesn't matter, said Dibbler sharply. That's not important. But, Silverfish said, if we went around saying Hager's house of ribs was the best place in the city, what would all the other restaurants think? Dibbler leaned across the table. They'd think, he said. Why didn't we think of it first? He sat back. Silverfish flashed him a look of bright incomprehension. Just uh, run that past me one more time, will you? He said. They'll want to do exactly the same thing, said Dibbler. I know, said Victor. They'll want us to hold up cards with things on like Hager's isn't the best place in town, actually ours is. Something like that, something like that, snapped Dibbler, glaring at him. Maybe we can work on the words, but something like that. But, uh, but, Silverfish fought to keep ahead of the conversation. Hager won't like it, will he? If he pays us money to say his place is best, and then we take money from other people to say that their place is best, then he's bound to, um... Pay us more money, said Dibbler, to say it again, only in larger letters. They stared at him. You really think that'll work? said Silverfish. Yes, said Dibbler flatly. You listen to the street traders any morning. They don't shout out, Nearly fresh oranges, only slightly squashy, reasonable value, do they? No, they shout out, Get your oranges, they're lovely. Good business sense. He leaned across the desk again. Seems to me, he said, that you could do with some of that around here. Uh, so it appears, said Silverfish weakly. And with the money, said Dibbler, his voice a crowbar inserted in the cracks in reality, you could really get on with perfecting your art. Silverfish brightened a bit. That's true, he said. For example, some way of getting sound on the... Dibbler wasn't listening. He pointed to a stack of boards leaning against the wall. What are those, he said. Ah, said Silverfish, that was my idea. We thought it would be, um... Good business sense, he savoured the words as if they were some rare new sweet, to tell people about the other moving pictures we were making. Dibbler picked up one of the boards and held it critically at arm's length. It said, Nexty weeky, we will be shooing Pelias and Melisander, a romantic tragedy in two reels. Thank you. Oh, he said flatly. Isn't that all right, said Silverfish, now thoroughly beaten. I mean, it tells them everything they should know, doesn't it? May I? said Dibbler, taking a piece of chalk from Silverfish's desk. He scribbled intently on the back of the card for a while, and then turned it round. Now it read, Goddies and men said it was naughty to be, but they would naughty listen. Pelias and Melisander, a story of forbidden love. A searing saga of passion that bridged space and time. This will shock you.
with a thousand elephants. Victor and Silverfish read it carefully, as one reads a dinner menu in an alien language. This was an alien language, and to make it worse, it was also their own. Well, well, said Silverfish, my word. I don't know if there was anything actually forbidden. Uh, it was just very historical. I thought it would help, you know, children and so on, learn about history. They never actually met, you know, which was what was so tragic. It was all uh, very um, sad. He stared at the card. Though I must say you've certainly got something there. Um, he looked uncomfortable about something. I don't actually remember any elephants, he said, as if it was his own fault. I was there the whole afternoon we made it, and I don't recall a thousand elephants at any point. I'm sure I would have noticed. Dibbler stared. He didn't know where they were coming from, but now he was putting his mind to it, he was getting some very clear ideas about what you needed to put in movies. A thousand elephants was a good start. No elephants, he said. I don't think so. Well, are there any dancing girls? Um, no. Well, are there any wild chases and people hanging by their fingertips from the edge of a cliff? Silverfish brightened up slightly. I think there's a balcony at one point, he said. Yes. Does anyone hang on it by their fingertips? I don't think so, said Silverfish. I believe Melisander leans over it. Yes, but will the audience hold their breath in case she falls off? I hope they'd be watching Pelias's speech, said Silverfish testily. We had to put it on five cards, in small writing. Dibbler sighed. I think I know what people want, he said, and they don't want to read lots of small writing. They want spectacles. Because of the small writing, said Victor sarcastically. They want dancing girls. They want thrills. They want elephants. They want people falling off roofs. They want dreams. The world is full of little people with big dreams. What, you mean like dwarfs and gnomes and so on, said Victor? No! Tell me, Mr Dibbler, said Silverfish, what exactly is your profession? I sell merchandise, said Dibbler. Mostly sausages. Victor volunteered. And merchandise, said Dibbler sharply. I only sell sausages when the merchandising trade is a bit slow. And the sale of sausages leads you to believe you can make better moving pictures, said Silverfish. Anyone can sell sausages, isn't that so, Victor? Well, said Victor reluctantly, no one except Dibbler could possibly sell Dibbler's sausages. There you are, then, said Silverfish. The thing is, said Victor, that Mr Dibbler can even sell sausages to people that have bought them off him before. That's right, said Dibbler. He beamed at Victor. And a man who could sell Mr Dibbler's sausages twice could sell anything, said Victor. End of CD 2